0: Hi, it's Lise Aaron, author of Matilda Empress, and I'm here with Adrian Sharp, uh, author hi, of the hi. magnificent Esme Wells, among many other novels. Yes, yeah, nice to be here, Lise. As writers of historical fiction, even though we haven't covered the same periods exactly, I think we're still doing the same job, essentially, which is leading the reader back in in time to a specific place that is not our own and I, I always struggle with first lines and beginnings because you have to create that world from scratch and do you find also that once you have a few paragraphs down you're in the world and and that at the beginning it seems the most important, that the sort of portal through which the reader has to walk through, or you find otherwise?
1: Well, I'd agree with you. To place the character within the context of her world sort of immediately is the most difficult thing to do. And I, I don't feel that I can even start to write my first lines until I can visualize the place, the buildings, the landscape, uh, the people that might populate that landscape. And in fact, I think both of uh, my most recent books that are historical fiction do that in the first scene, sort of lay out, uh, in the case of Esme Wells, here's early Las Vegas, before there was anything, before the Flamingo was built, which was the first high-profile a casino hotel on the Strip. So I had to sort of map out that landscape, and in fact, even sometimes put in too many details. So I I find that the struggle too to not overwhelm the reader. My husband took a look at my opening section for Esme, and then I gave it to my daughter to read. And she said, Mom, I feel kind of overwhelmed by all the details, like the blocks of ice they use to cool the auction tents with. And from the other room, my husband yells out, Hey, I told you to take out those blocks of ice. So <laughs> it's really hard, I think, to find the right balance of how much detail and and what's the right amount of detail. I agree. How about you? I know, I, I agree. And there's also the the element of, of weaving in the
0: details so they aren't this obvious clunky moment of exegesis where you're saying, "And now I'm going to prove that I did my research." That's <laughs> right, exactly. Take, take it <laughs> just so the reader doesn't realize that it isn't it isn't obvious. The scenes they can't see the scenes where you pieced it together, and that's right. of course a challenge. But I also right. find that I've been struck with the reader responses to my book, which is set in the 12th century, I have some people who feel you know, they're historians <laughs> mostly, but there are just people who are very engaged readers of historical fiction who get very upset at the things that one has to change. And then there are the people who get upset if there's too much. His almost They don't want it to be a history textbook. They just want They just want the window dressing. They really want to get right to the emotional heart of the story. So you can get extremely positive responses from some readers to a part where you held back from letting, from having the world be a different one from ours. And then other people are going to respond to that in a different way. I mean, you can only write the book that you can write. And so I wrote the kind of book that I like to read, which is chock full of minute domestic detail. Uh, But other people don't want as much.
1: I agree. It's a difficult balance. And uh, the far back in time we go, your book so long ago, you know, a thousand years ago, uh, things are so different that you almost feel as if you have to supply even more explanation and detail. So in some ways, it was easier for me to write about the 50s than it was for me to write about the 1860s. As I more things were familiar, less things needed to be detailed. We pretty much used many of the same kind of appliances and pens and things like that, whereas in the 1860s, it was carriages and people kept cows in their backyard so their kids could have fresh milk, even, you know, well-born aristocracy. So there were so many things that I wanted to put in that in it, it took that story um, longer to get launched because of the lay of the land, I
0: think. Yes, definitely. Um, it's, I, I had that same issue come up with my cover choice. I made the choice to, use a photograph that is a modern photograph but is very suggestive of my period. It's a beautiful, beautiful coverage. It is a striking photograph but it's obviously a photograph so it's not a period piece and her clothes are, while suggestive of medieval costume, are not historically correct. It's, It's more an image that is appealing to the modern eye and a modern idea of history, a sort of theatrical view of it and so some people, again, are very just drawn to that. I chose it because the character, the, the expression on, on the woman's face in the photograph is, a, is the heart and soul of my character. You know, there's there's passion, there's revenge, there's resignation. There's, there, there's everything that's going on in, in my novel, which has love and war <laughs> in spades. And so I picked it was a dark cover. I just thought it was very expressive of that. The atmosphere and the the tr- the emotional truth of my book. Some people again say, "Well, the costume's not correct," and it was would be more important to them to have a drawing that wasn't nearly as engaging emotionally. <laughs> so there's always I this- like
1: the cover. I liked the cover because uh, her face was a modern face. You immediately connected with her. Uh, didn't feel off-put maybe by a a. Drawing or a lithograph, and and the character didn't seem so distant. I think covers are important in that way. I mean, I'm not sure how many people walk into bookstores anymore and look at book covers, but publishers certainly take a great deal of care over them. And, in fact, there was a lot of fighting over my Esme Wells book cover. Um, At first, the publisher kept choosing images of a kind of 1950s babes with sunglasses. And I just thought, how is that capturing the atmosphere of my book and the fact that my narrator is a young girl for most of the sections? So I actually I don't know if you chose your photograph, but I started mocking up very obnoxiously uh, my uh, favorite imaginations of a book cover kind of blending together shots of old Vegas and old L.A. And my book cover is not that much different from what I was hoping it might be ultimately. But um, yeah, yeah, we went through a lot of covers.
0: Now, I played a big role in, in the cover choice also, which was, since it was my first novel, a surprise to me, too, but a pleasant surprise, the extent to which you could have input. And because I the cover, it, it does become so representative. And whether people are buying the book in a bookstore because they've been drawn to the cover or whether even they're buying it online, that little image of your cover is your avatar, I mean,
1: becomes your book
0: in a way. Especially in the
1: virtual world. That's right. It's your statement. But normally you don't have quite that much input. I think you were lucky in that your publisher was so flexible. And I was lucky in that my editor was brand new to being an editor at a house and didn't know that the author usually (laughs) allowed so much input. (laughs) Well, beginner's luck. Your cover is very yeah. beautiful. It
0: is very evocative of, of the period. And it does, right, the girl is the, the, your eye immediately goes to to her image. And the fact that she's slightly blurred is very evocative, too. It's a lovely cover.
1: Thank uh, you. You as well.
0: Another thing that's I, related to what we're talking about, I noticed in your author's note for Esme that you've talked about compressing some events or for reasons of story, making other changes. And I made the same choice. And I feel that when you create a work of art, you, you do compose your elements. And since we're straddling art and, we're straddling fact and fiction, we're straddling art and history. And when you do that, you're going to create something that's more than its parts. So of course there's the hand that, that chooses the story so that it creates a catharsis and that there's the right pacing and but it's again very interesting how people will some people will object on theoretical grounds that you can't change anything and in fact hillary uh mantle who's uh hillary mantel who's a you know obviously a master of historical fiction she's quite averse to the any notion of change. She feels that you just have to do more research to find out, so find something you can use and that you can never put them in castle A if you knew for a fact they were in castle B. But I've, I feel mm. differently. I, sometimes you need to conflate castle A and castle B because their names are practically the same.
1: I think, um, yeah, I try to straddle that line. One of the things I find most fun about historical fiction is reading as things actually happened and then finding places to insert my characters, sort of like a Forrest Gump who happens to appear here and there so that my character becomes part of that history. For example, um, Tony Cornero was killed in the desert in casino, as I described, handed a drink they suspect that was poisoned by a cocktail waitress in the early morning hours. And so I simply had my character become that cocktail waitress uh, delivering that drink. So I would try to find ways to um, have my characters be there or be part of events that already took place. A lot of what I had to do in um, the Esme book is simply compress time because many of the hotels opened in the late 50s and uh, my story didn't stretch that long. So I had hotels opening earlier than they did. In my little K book, I had my character um, entering the czar's life in places where I thought it might have made sense for him. Her to reenter his life and to sort of spin a tale around the son that she actually had that was rumored to be the Tsar's son, make it happen at a time where it could have been the Tsar's son during a very difficult period he went through with Alexandra. So those things I find sort of my secret fun. Uh, and uh, it's one of the most engaging things I think about writing historical fiction.
0: I agree. I mean, I think If something's a rumor, it's good to go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of fun. I mean, that's why we're writing fiction instead of history books.
0: Exactly. If medieval historians spread the rumor, then there's a kernel of truth to it somewhere. And it may not be exactly what I fleshed out, but it's certainly worth, in in a novel of fiction, it's certainly fair game. And illegitimate children are are way up there on the list of interesting possibilities, uh, and, and I do the same. Uh, with the character of mine, but also in terms of writing in a story set as far back as I have, my choices more had to do with everyone having practically the same name and many, <laughs> I mean, everyone was called Maud um, and you know choosing in some cases to use the vernacular version, in some cases to use the Latin um, even though in certain historical writings they were both you know, if it's written in Latin, everyone has the Latin. So just so that the reader can can keep people straight. And in terms of location, again, right, moving, choosing the most interesting battles and making them, leaving out all the six minor skirmishes in between just for the sake of story. And again, it, our books are in the fiction section. So it seems that uh, that's permissible to me.
1: Were you a uh, other- history major by trade or how did you come to well, I, your great interest?
0: I was actually um, in college it was a dual major called history and literature so I was oh, wow. doing both and oh. maybe in my heart of hearts I really am a historian but there's certainly a lot because I love that aspect of it. I mean the history of it is is, is so deeply fascinating to me but then having the liberty to to pick and choose and to conflate and, 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 and to make something engaging, to make the history come alive, really, so that people care about it again. I think it's a nice uh, historical fiction allows you to have your cake and eat it, too.
1: I know. It's fascinating to be able to travel back. I didn't really realize how much I'm interested in time and place. My first couple of books were sort of about the ballet world in New York City in the 1980s. And those are the books where I took a lot of flack from ballet critics and danceophiles who would um, call me out on any slight error, whether it was an error or not, because they thought they knew better. I remember one dance critic saying, you know... Nicholas Martin is not tall, and then later apologizing to me when she met me, saying, you were right, he's over six feet. I didn't know it till I stood against him in a lobby reception. So they would be like that that, uh, scrutinizing of every detail of that ballet world. Then I found when I left that world that I was still interested in period, the book i'm working on now is set in the 70s in california sort of the heyday of crazy variety shows on tv and uh, the smog-filled skies of la and then the human potential movement going up uh, at big sur at eslin institute and again it's that same where period and landscape are almost a character i don't know what you're working on now is it a Another it's another, book. It's another medieval book, but it's set 200 years later in the 14th century, um, mm. which,
0: which, again, people assume, oh, the Middle Ages, it's one amorphous period. But that, the beginning of the Middle Ages and the end of the Middle Ages are completely different times. I mean, 200 years, even though progress moved more slowly, there still was an enormous cultural shift over that period. So there's, it's a completely different book. And um, I, I think that uh, I agree completely about the setting being a character. It's probably to me even more than, it's almost several characters in that every time you switch locations, if you move from, if your character moves from France to England, or if, if you move from war to a domestic scene, it, you you have this uh, this other thing that you have to fill with as much life as you would if had you introduced a new character, um, but I, I find actually that I love doing that part. I get sometimes worried, and I'm sure this came up for you with the books that you did set in in the world of ballets. When you are writing purely about character, or then to what extent you relying on people that you know (laughs) and to what extent can you hide their identity in a fictional character or in a historical figure without them noticing and uh, there are so many issues surrounding that too I mean when you go to create a person out of nothing or when you go to take a historical person about very about whom very little is known, you're obviously going to, your research is just the human condition. And so, you, of course, you're drawing from, from the people of your acquaintance. And, and right. so that kind of research and that kind of using of details has a whole other host of issues surrounding it.
1: I I think that's true. In some ways, you are safer and less safe than I am because your characters are from so long ago with much less written about them than some of the historical figures that I'm using. You're going to infuse them more with characteristics and personalities that people you know. And I think that is the thing about fiction writing. The sort of the secret is, is that no one's fictional. Everyone is based on someone you know, how directly you expose them, though, is, is the sort of a trickier question. Uh, my Esme character was a mashup of my uncle and my mother, and so many of the things that I write about and imagine um, happened to him or happened to her. Some aspects are her personality, some his, the parents In Esme are definitely my mother's parents who were neglectful and reckless and abandoned her and headed west and had a second child who had this life that I gave to Esme, a life my mother always envied because her brother that she never got to know very well lived this life with her parents. And so that was a hard book to write. Making her feel better by showing her it wasn't all it appeared, right? I would think she would be grateful because my uncle ended up with his lack of education, uh, having to work as a janitor, and my mother got admission to medical school. So, yes, she wasn't with those parents, and yes, she longed for their love all her life, but she had a stable upbringing with the rest of her family and was able to, you know, uh, have a very comfortable and successful life, unlike my poor uncle. I
0: sort of make it a point to always have someone's physical description be absolutely in no way reflective of the personality traits of the person I'm writing about you know, <laughs> in this character, just to throw up people off the scent. But, um, <laughs> but I find with my main character, it was really my own self, even though of course we have nothing in common while I was writing the book. I feel that I had become her, she, me. And so it was really my own personality and flaws and strengths that I was drawing on. And Interesting. It, it was like, but it was like playing a role.
1: I have a lot of trouble writing about myself, actually putting myself into a character. And I'm been very unsuccessful with any character that i've infused with i just don't understand why exactly it is but i admire that you're able to do that to put some of your own traits into that character
0: yeah i mean i think in the same way that were i playing this character in in a play on stage right personality when you read the lines you read them as if if you had said them whereas it's not that those are my lines. It's just that for that moment they were mine. This is how I would say this thing, were it my life, were it my war, were right. my love. This is how right. I, this is how I would have behaved in that situation. That's how I would have what I would have brought to it. And I think to to then start again with a new character who's also a woman, my main character again. But it's she's vastly different from the first, and almost nothing is known about her, even though she's a real person. So the parts of me that come out in that role playing are are entirely different parts.
1: Uh, Yeah, and and still, neither of them are ultimately me. Um, Well, well, I think how else do you infuse a character except with your own experiences, uh, insights, and observations? So you're drawing on yourself. Yeah, you know, it's interesting right now, um, the book that I'm working on is about uh, my um, ex-boyfriend who I found out was murdered, and I'm writing about him and his very charismatic family. It's material I worked on uh, before, and told from the point of view of moi, the girlfriend, uh, observing the family and the young man, and now returning into it a couple of decades later, I am no longer interested in the girl, but much more interested in the grandmother and the parents and their points of view as, you know, the world turns for them. And I've read in your foreword how you returned to your material a decade or so later after having children and that it reshaped your whole vision of your
0: book. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, and I think that, that's what I almost mean also about play acting because if you start a book from, in, from the beginning at a character's youth I'm definitely pretending to be a young person again you know in those moments um, and I'm projecting you know at the end of the arc of her life when she's when she's older and, and full of you know resignation and regret I'm projecting how I'm going to feel looking back so those are definitely roles uh, or parts of myself. But it is interesting that now you're you're more interested in the parent or the grandparent's point of view. I, I I noticed like, I have a daughter who's who's twenty one and I've noticed ever since she was born that to read your daughter a fairy tale and to realize you are no longer that central character having the buildings Roman, you're like the absent mother or maybe you're the witch
1: <laughs> in the forest or <laughs>
0: Not the book's not about you anymore, it's about you know, the human potential that is a child, and you're just in the way. <laughs> at best, it's you're so- a fairy <laughs> godmother, and at worst, you're an obstacle to be done away with. And uh, <laughs> I was struck immediately um, at how much less fun fairy tales became the minute I was a mom.
1: Yes, it's point. interesting. The characters that begin to engage us are not, you know, the young girl in love that is become less engaging and more of the struggles of being a parent or seeing your child fail or, you know, a, a marriage of three decades and, you know, the fabric of that become more interesting. And I was also interested to see a little bit about your struggle to write being a mother. I think we've both been writing over a couple of decades while raising our kids. Uh, How did you, what did you do to carve out your writing time?
0: Luckily, they just got older. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so once they were in school, essentially nine to five, the, the time presented itself. And At that point, I had become involved in the other kinds of work that I was doing outside the home. It was very piecemeal and uh, sort of as they can be when you can't give full time to something. And so then at that point, once the opportunity presented itself, to backpedal and to get out of all those other piecemeal kinds of work that I did um, was awkward. It was awkward to start saying no when you had been available to say yes. You know, in terms of volunteer work, in terms of, you know, various parenting things that I that I did or even just other work that I did in, on a part time basis. So to, that was the hardest part. And at that moment, once I realized I was ready to do it, to try to do it as, as my main, you know, try to make something of it and to try to make it um, full time work. Uh, it was yeah. almost getting out of my own way. Once the, ki- the kids grew up and so they were out of the way, but I was still in the way. Um, I had to give myself permission to to go for it, and actually now, when my kids, when I, when the book finally came out um, a year ago uh, in hardback, it was my kids' reaction was how proud they were to see that it was real. Really took me aback because I almost didn't want to see how much more they respected the enterprise once it was successful. Because are you thinking, well, maybe I would have been successful sooner had you not been, you know, needing to go to a birthday party. <laughs> like, what do you, you know, this could have happened five years ago if I said no to every birthday party you had ever been invited to. If I refused to let you have play dates, we could have been here a little a lot faster. Um, but actually that's when, I think it really struck them and then me that, it, that I had moved on to a new phase in my life where work could be more central. It could be the whole deal again, as it had been you know, earlier. Uh, I used to be an English professor before I, um, I stopped working the first time around. And um, so they've been an essential emotional element um, I don't know that they've ever read my book and given me their opinions, though. But both my kids, once the book was out, have a relationship with it. My son, um, who's in high school, happened to be studying you know, the medieval period um, last spring in history. And he did his big research paper on my main character,
1: how fun is that? Which, I, which <laughs> I did him the compliment
0: of not reading his research paper since he didn't read my book.
1: <laughs> yeah, my son hasn't read any of my work. So uh, my daughter has read about, my last two books. <laughs>
0: about, you know, my book's set in the period of Civil War, and we've talked about that Civil War. And I certainly said, oh, you should read these sources. And I, wouldn't, I, I don't think these are as valuable for you. You should really go to these sources. So we had... He had, I was his librarian to a certain extent, but he, um, his teacher, I saw his teacher after um, the year was over and his teacher was saying something about his paper and I didn't want to admit that I hadn't read it. (laughs) (laughs) So I just nodded and smiled. Um, And then my daughter who's at university had, some of her professors read it actually. And um, I was surprised and flatter that she told them about it and that I think, you know, that she sort of engaged with, she did read the book, but that she then shared it with other people, I, I found really um, flattering and moving. That, she yeah, took yeah. It that So series. you're
1: both a professional person and then also their mother. And yeah. that's interesting and odd because they normally think of their dad as the, who has a professional identity in the world and other people know and now here you are my kids have begun to see my writing as something from which they can have concrete benefit because at well, my first book which I struggled to write while well, they were very little and it took a long time it was a collection of stories because that was all I could write when they were small given the sporadic attention that you can give to your work when your kids are demanding so much of it I'm not sure uh, I can see why you couldn't write your novel till they were more in school for longer periods. But now once I started uh, making money from my work, now they see, okay, it has a tangible thing. Like we can get all this new furniture and we can go to Europe and, you know, the the, the book actually. And so now they're like saying, can you hurry up? and? finish this draft you're working on and sell it because we want to go to, you know, Florence, Italy, and Rome at Christmas. Could you please hurry up? And now I feel this uh, sort of this odd pressure that, um, you know, my work has this tangible benefit for them that they're eager to, you know, partake in. So there's a a certain bizarre pressure now behind my writing desk when I'm at work.
0: Well, it's it's funny because my kids the work that I did before as a professor was almost too much like the work I did as their mom because that was how I parented. I just taught them to read. We did workbooks. That was my idea of parenting because those were the things that I liked. And I never threw a ball at them. I I, I came at it with just the, I shared the things I loved. So they probably was harder for them to see my actual work as a professor was just the same stuff we did at home. Um, so then again, and then writing a book, it was just telling a story. I was always or just reading them a story again. It, they really had to see it for sale in a bookstore or online. They, that really told them that now something was different. It was, it was somebody, it was the world telling them. Um, so, uh,
1: and, you know, also, it's a way for us to realize as well that um, we are writers, you know, we dreamed of being writers. And then here you have the physical manifestation of your book and other people are reading it. So you had talked about dreaming of being a writer for a long time before you actually gave yourself license to work at it and and. Be the writer you want it to be. And that's something difficult for writers because you're working very privately all by yourself. No one's asking you to do this. No one's waiting for it. And every book is an adventure. Every book is on spec. Are you going to sell it? Are you not going to sell it? And and then to actually see the book out there is, okay, you are in some, some version of your imagined self have accomplished that.
0: You know, I think I was glad also to show that failure is not absolute. So here I was struggling to do something for years, and yet at the end of the day, it still happened. So I think that was an important trajectory too, that you hear a lot of no in this, certainly in the creative field, you, there are a lot of gatekeepers and you hear no a lot. And so do you right. accept no? Or do you say yes anyway? So saying yes to the no, I, I think is is a life skill that I was glad people talk a lot about grit. But I mean, there there's the gritty moment. Will you keep at it? Will you re-edit it? Will you send it out again? And I thought that was. And a- I
1: think yes, those are good traits to model. Um, I always tell my kids if you can't get in the front door, then go around the side door. And see if there's a back door. Um, I had a huge disappointment when I wrote Esme and sent it to my agent who'd placed my last three books. She read it and said, I I can't place this. I can't handle this. And I was, what do I do now? So what I did was just, instead of just give up, which is what I really wanted to do, just throw myself on my bed and weep, um, I just got another agent who went out and sold the book in one week for six figures. So now I was showing my kids, you know, just as you said, there are so many no's in this world. And to have your agent abandon you is kind of a big thing mid-career. I wasn't sure I could even get another agent. And I wasn't even sure if anyone would like the book if my agent didn't. Um. So I – but I just feel like I, I can't show – my family um a trait of uh defeat or giving up so tenacity is something i want to model for them so the the main character in my book
0: is she's all she gets she's surrounded by naysayers and she is fighting and fighting and fighting for something Mm -hmm. that ultimately she doesn't get in the form that that she expected and so it was it was interesting for me, too, to sort of have that parallel experience of keeping at it, keep coming back to it, not taking no for an answer, fighting for something that I thought I had some right to. You know? um, exactly. So a personal right to, I mean, I didn't really have a right to it. I mean, it was just a dream of mine and, uh, that I had about myself. So I gifted myself this, this dream, and I decided that I had a right to this dream. And so writing about a character who also was struggling, I, I felt like I was very aware, always aware of what it meant not to have it come easy. Um, and the character, and, and I wonder whether ultimately every story, every book you write, is the same on a certain elemental level. Like I noticed that the book I'm writing now is also about overcoming obstacles and not getting what you want and what are you going to do about that? What, how are you going to move on from that? And what, how are you going to recreate the this, this situation so that you get something, whether it's not what you thought you were going to get the first thing, but still so that something happens that is fulfilling for you. So, I mean, maybe that's the only story I can write, but I, I think maybe that's the only story there is. <laughs> um,
1: well, I think that that's a major story for me, and I'm wondering, is are these major stories for us because we are women writers or simply because, as you say, it's a human story to pursue an ambition, to get some portion of it or all of it? And, of course, once you get all of it, it's not what you thought and can be burdensome. And if you get part of it, how do you make your peace with that? But, but certainly the lives of the women that I've been writing about in all of my books are about that. The fulfillment of ambition, the limitations of ambition and acquisition. So, and, of course, all drama requires conflict. So we have to set our characters into conflict of some type. And the conflict we're setting them in is... The internal one of trying to, trying to actualize, trying to fulfill their ambition. Interesting that we've written about women so far apart in, in millennium and yet so interestingly the same. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was a pleasure to um, talk.
1: Lovely to speak with you, Liz, and thank you so much. I look
0: forward to finishing The Magnificent Esme Wells. It's captivating from the beginning.
1: And Matilda Empress, uh, the fantastic journey. Thank you so much. Goodbye.